All right. Welcome to church, everybody. Welcome to church, everybody joining us in your house. We are so glad all six of us here in this room are glad to be joining with you in church today. Uh, we've got an amazing, good-looking studio audience, and they have said they're going to be loud so you can hear them today. Uh, we are glad that you are here at church. Make sure you grab your Bibles and notes. I know we've got them here. So open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Man, I hope you've been encouraged by the last couple of weeks. Uh, I know I was encouraged. Um, I was encouraged by the message I preached two weeks ago and what my dad preached last week about the Bible. So good, so encouraging. And uh, I'm excited. We are stepping out today. We're starting on, I think the next 12 weeks, we're going to be going through different books of the Bible as we kind of continue just this theme we feel like God's been leading us into uh, in this season of uh, just learning how to read the Bible, learning what is the Bible, learning how to read different parts of the Bible, different styles of things in the Bible. So if you've ever had questions about the Bible, we are going to engage with some of them and not answer all of them. So, uh, but it's going to be a good time over these next 12 weeks. So, uh, uh, in the next three weeks, we're here in the book of Luke, and we're starting in verse 1, and we're going to read right off the bat, right as we get started this morning. So if you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. Luke chapter 1, here we go, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch, how's that for a vocab word? <laughs> so everybody uh, homeschooling at home, if you need a spelling word for your kids, inasmuch. But doesn't, are we just in one of those times? You know, I've seen all these memes about, you know, uh, no, 50 years from now, Grandpa, tell me about when the coronavirus hit. I feel like those stories are going to start with, in as much, you know, it's just one of those times. There's a lot going on, like, you know, then or all the other four Gospels, they start with like the or in, but, but Luke is hitting on something, I, I think. Sometimes life, it's just sort of like, in as much, in as much, he says, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is a heck of a first clause of Luke. In as much as many have, over, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things. Anybody else hearing some narratives in these days of some things? It just seems like everybody has a narrative that they are compiling right now of all of the things. And I'm always encouraged when I find myself in the Bible. I think that we can find ourselves in this first half of a sentence here in Luke 1. We are in these days, in as much kind of days. We are in days where many are undertaking, putting together a narrative of what is or isn't happening, whose fault it is or isn't, what am I going to do? And so my question for you this morning, just real quick as we start off in the book of Luke, is, is who has your ear? Who has your ear? As, as many are compiling narratives, who are you listening to? What are you listening to? In the midst of everything going on right now, who has your eye? Who has your focus today? I hear people saying a lot, these are unprecedented times. And that's a big word, unprecedented. That's uh, a bold statement. And, and in some ways, I think that the times that we are in, that we are in they, they are unprecedented unprecedented um, as far as you know statewide nationwide countrywide quarantines that's not real common um, but in some ways I want to encourage us in, in kind of a weird backwards way that some of what we're going through is in many ways a new version of the same thing we're always going through 
My point is that, that life is wild, right? Yeah. Life's always crazy. Uh, we are just kind of becoming more aware than usual that we're not in control of some of the things that we thought we were in control of. We haven't actually lost that much control. We're just realizing some of the things we thought we had control of, we really didn't. Life is crazy. Things are, things are wild. Things are happening outside of our control. And, and, that, and that's just the hard stuff. That's this, the stuff happening all around in the world around us. The truth is for each and every one of you, you have your own life and your own world. And there's little versions of crises happening right here, yeah. right now, day in, day out, kind of like there always are. Maybe the specifics are different, but I just think that there's an awkward type of calm that can come when we realize that this is these are unprecedented times and they're normal times and that's not to minimize anything that we're going through anybody that any anything that any one person might be going through but I just think it's still true Mm -hmm. these are wild times and as much as certain parts are unprecedented it is not unprecedented that many people are talking People are talking. People are talking like they always talk, compiling narratives about what is going on. And this brings us to the book of Luke. The book of Luke that we are spent starting in this morning, it was written uh, sensibly by a guy named Luke. So they nailed the author in the Gospel of Luke name. And Luke was a doctor. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, who uh, the Apostle Paul, if you don't know much about him, he was the pretty much the catalytic guy of seeing the church start in nations all around the known world right after in the following decades uh, after Jesus' life. So Luke was a doctor. He was smart. He was a traveling companion of Paul. He had been around the world. He had been through some things. He knew some different people, and he had been a part of seeing the church catalyzed around around the world in the decades after Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And so he is sinning in a world where in as much is happening. There is much happening in the world that Luke is living in. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things about what is happening in the world around. And so Luke begins to explain to us here in these first few verses, why is he writing the Gospel of Luke. Why does he write this document that started out as a letter that we now have as a part of our Bible? Verse 2, he goes on, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Many scholars agree that the the book of Luke, what we're reading, these words were originally penned around 60 uh, AD, which means like we're talking within about 25 years or so of Jesus's resurrection. Luke is recounting the life of Jesus. Like I said, the church is spreading around the world. Communities of Christians are popping up in all different cities and nations, and they're having incredible impact on the societies that they are springing up in all around the known world. They're springing up, they're growing, they're multiplying, and what also happens is everywhere that Christians show up, persecution shows up as well. Just about everywhere that there are Christians, there are stories of them being persecuted, people being arrested disowned, and even killed for following Jesus. So if you could just imagine, maybe hypothetically, there's this thing 
that is spreading all around the world. And it's making its way into each and every type of community in every corner of the world. This thing is spreading. It's impacting complete societies in every sphere of society, every type of person in society. It's spreading. And as it spreads, it begins to transform the way people live their lives. It begins to transform the way societies function. If you could imagine such a thing. People are taking notice of this thing that is spreading. And people are doing what people do when things start spreading. And these things that start spreading start changing things. People start talking. They start compiling narratives of things that they don't fully understand. They start talking, giving their input, giving their opinions drawing their conclusions, compiling their narratives. And, and all that is fine and good. We all have opinions and thoughts and, and, and perspectives. That's all good. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It seems like when, when everybody has a story about what's going on, it's hard to really know what the story is that's going on. We are spending these next few weeks, like I said, in the book of Luke. And so our little series in these next three weeks, I want to title it, What's the Big Deal?, about Jesus. As we go through Luke, I want to keep this question before us. What's the big deal about Jesus? Because the book of Luke was written to an audience, specifically this person named in verse 3, a guy named Theophilus. But Theophilus, as much as it was written to him, he represents a greater world that is hearing about Jesus, hearing all the different narratives about Jesus. And they're asking this legitimate question as they see the name of this man spread, the impact of this man spread. They are watching and they're wondering and they're talking, but really what they're asking is, what is the big deal about this Jesus? And we should be asking the same question. We should be asking the same question, especially after these last two weeks that we've had together when we've been talking about the Bible. We have said that the key to understanding the Bible is understanding that this entire book and all of its complexities is one cohesive story that culminates and finds its explanation in this man, Jesus. We have said that the key to trusting this book is not only the evidence that supports it uh, as far as literature goes and archaeology and historical context. All of those sorts of things are great and they matter and they're helpful. But more than anything, the greatest testimony that we can trust this book is that when we read it, we are led in a personal encounter with this man, Jesus. We today are making the same claims that these first century Jesus followers were making about this man, Jesus. He is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. He lived, he died, and he rose again so that humanity could be redeemed, so that humanity could be restored to relationship with God, filled with his spirit, and then participate with him in what he is doing in all of time, all around the world. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is life. He is the source of life. And he is the establishment of the moral compass for all of the universe. All of the universe. And because of this man because of these claims that we make because of this we put our faith in him declaring him as lord of our lives saying that we will follow him no matter what he says 
No matter where he says to go, no matter what it might cost, we will follow him to make him known in the world that we live in. We are making these claims, and just like in the first century, people today are hearing these claims. They're watching you, and they're watching me make these claims and live our lives in our best effort in response to these claims. And people are wondering, what's the big deal about this Jesus? So Luke sits down. He sits down in a world asking this question. He says he wants to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Compiled, he says, through years as we learn more about Luke's life through his writing in Luke and his writing of the book of Acts, we learn that he compiled this through years of gathering eyewitness accounts, like he says here in verse 2. Eyewitness accounts of people that were friends with Jesus, not people who had heard some things about Jesus, but, but he actually was friends with. He would travel with and talk with people who actually knew Jesus best, who were his closest followers, Peter, James, John. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that he probably spent a lot of time with Mary, the mother of Jesus, hearing eyewitness accounts of the life and impact of Jesus. And he writes with the express purpose given to us in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants you to have certainty in these uncertain times. Luke wants you to have something to stand on in the midst of everything else shaking. Luke wants you to have something you can hold on to as you lose the grip on so many things you thought you held so firmly. He wants you to be certain that Jesus is Lord. Amen. So he starts the story of Jesus. And he writes, beginning with the birth of Jesus. Well, actually, he doesn't really start with the birth of Jesus. He starts, before he gets to the birth of Jesus, he actually talks about Jesus' parents. Actually, though, before he starts talking about Jesus' parents, he starts talking about a relative of Jesus, like a second cousin, John the Baptist, in his birth. And actually, before he starts talking about John the Baptist, he starts talking about John the Baptist, Jesus' second cousin's parents. We don't hear anything about their dog, but we hear a lot about all of these different relatives that kind of then lead us to the birth story of Jesus. And it's really actually, when, when, when you look at it, it's quite a lot of context that Luke gives. When you consider like the gravity of the story he's trying to tell, when you consider the meat that he is aiming to get to, he gives us a lot of backstory about how not only, how, not only the truth that God came, but tells us a lot about how God came. And I actually really appreciate that because as we look at the birth story of Jesus together, I think that there's not only a lot to learn, not only a lot to become certain of by knowing the fact that God comes, but when we look at Him in the birth of Jesus, we actually learn some important things about how God comes. We don't need to know that only God does come, but, but how does God come? How does God come? The first thing that we learn as we begin to look in this story is that God seems to, number one, always come to the wrong person. When I look at the birth story of Jesus, I see that God not only comes, but He consistently comes to the wrong person. 
If you read your Bible much or have read your Bible much, this should be something that you notice quite quickly. And uh, sometimes I think that like if you start in Genesis and you start reading about some of these people, you'll probably think they're the wrong person. But then you're like, well, it can't be the wrong person because it's the Bible. Apparently these are good people, but I got questions about these folks. No, you've got questions because they were in fact for sure the wrong people. We mentioned a few weeks ago how, you know, the, the founding fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, you read about some of these guys in the New Testament and they're, they're hailed as heroes of our faith. But if you read through Genesis, you can have some legitimate questions. I don't know about you, but I actually get pretty offended when I read some of the people that God uses. I mean, if you've ever read Samson, I'm like, how did that guy get the power of God on his life? Hebrews 11, if you you can turn there real quick if you want to. Hebrews 11, um, we kind of talk about this in Christian circles as like the hall of faith, you know, kind of not our hall of fame, but our hall of faith. And it's a list of heroes of the faith through all millennia from the beginning of time and just lists off these people and what they did for God and what God did through them. But if we could just talk for a quick second about some of these people, we will see that God has a history of choosing the wrong person. In verse 21 of Hebrews 11, we'll just kind of start there. We'll skip over a lot of people, but uh, verse 21 says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Don't really know what that means, but man, it sounds important. <laughs> but Jacob, like, are we talking about the same Jacob who, who finessed his older brother into selling him his birthright for a bowl of soup? And then conned his dad with the help of his manipulative mother to then get the older brother's blessing while he dressed up like him, while his dad was dying and blind. Is that the same guy we're talking about? Verse 23, the next guy we, we, we hear, okay, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months. And then you get your preacher voice on and read about Moses. But Moses, like the exiled murderer who God chose to raise up the people of Israel to free them from Egypt and take them into the promised land, and then because of his attitude wasn't even allowed in? Right. That the, is that the Moses we're talking about? Yeah. Verse 31, let's just read it. Here we go. We don't need much explanation on this one. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute. That Rahab? That the Rahab we're talking about? Verse 32, let's just go right after that. But what more then shall I say would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson. Samson, I already mentioned, I don't even want to get into his life. It's too R-rated. Gideon, we're talking about Gideon. You know, the, the guy where the angel shows up and says, mighty man of valor while he's hiding in a wine press. While he is only obeying God at nighttime because he's scared of what everybody might think. Are we talking about Gideon, the one who made God do four outrageous miracles just to confirm the word that he had given him because an angel of the Lord showing up and sending fire on a rock wasn't confirmation enough? Is this who we're talking about? You want to talk about people? Who who does God come to? He comes to people of faith, Hebrews 11 says. And yes, he does. And the rest of the Bible also says that he comes consistently, seemingly, to the wrong person. And when I look at the story of Jesus, back to Luke chapter 1, God doesn't disappoint (laughs) picking the wrong people. Luke 1, we'll just start in verse 5. In the day of Herod, king of Judea, 
there was a priest named Zechariah. Okay, so this isn't Jesus. This isn't Jesus's parents. This isn't Jesus's second cousin. This is his second cousin's parents. There's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah or something. And he and his wife from, uh, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God. Sounds good. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the statutes of the Lord. Amen. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were well advanced in years. Okay, right off the bat, we're supposed to be getting to a baby, and so far we've got old barren couple. If we could just read a few more verses, let's just read it because it's the Bible and it's good. We're going to go all the way to verse 20. You guys down for it? Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at that hour of incense. And there, speaking of Zechariah in the temple, offering incense, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, this is getting good. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, eh, how am I going to know? <laughs> this guy. Because I don't know if you notice, but I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. <laughs> and the angel answered him, oh, I must have gone to the wrong guy. No. <laughs> the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. <laughs> so little angel background. All I really know about angels is Gabriel's a big dude all throughout the Bible. Okay. This is like, this is like angel numero uno. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to, and I was sent to speak to, you. <laughs> we only got a few people in here. Come on now. And I was sent to speak to you. and to bring you. you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Huh. So we got Zechariah the priest, supposed to be a man of faith, ministering at the altar of God, where, right where God's supposed to be. Like we're in the temple. Wow. This is the dwelling place of God at the altar. This is where God's supposed to be. And when God shows up, Zechariah's not having any of it. That's great, God, but I don't know if you noticed, I'm old and so is my wife. So we've got Zechariah, the priest with no faith, and we have Elizabeth, a woman with a closed womb, and some promise to have a son. And God picks them. God sends Gabriel 
to them. And those are just John's parents. If you look at Jesus' parents, they're not even married. They never engaged in any baby-making activity. Shout out to our Antioch Kids audience watching at home. And they didn't even live in the city where the Messiah was supposed to be born. But the same angel, a few verses later, Gabriel shows up to marry this teenage girl, promises her a son who will not only be a prophet like John, but he's actually going to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And finally... When a priest wouldn't step up to the plate in the temple next to the altar, a teenage girl nails the response in verse 38. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be. Let it be. If God said it, I'll believe it. See, Mary understood something about God. Mary understood that the promises God gives are bigger and better than the people God chooses. Mary understood the promises of something about the promises of God that the promises that God gives are bigger and better than the people that God chooses. Amen. And since the promises of God are bigger than the people God chooses, the birth story of Jesus shows us that God can give the wrong person or can give the wrong people, sorry, God can use the wrong people to birth the right things. Wow. God will choose you because he loves you. That's why God chooses you, not because you performed something or proved anything to him. And, and I just want to say, you know, we can, we can throw around the phrase, God loves you, like it's nothing. But I want to nail something specifically this morning in the birth of Jesus about the love of God. Is it means that the, what the love of God means for you is that he focuses more on your faith potential than on your failure potential. That's, so good. That's Hebrews 11. God loves you so much, he has so much confidence in his own faithfulness to accomplish his own promises that he can choose the wrong person to birth the right things. And he can do it because his love is so strong that it draws him to focus more on your faith potential than on your failure potential. He chooses you, not because he so believes in what you can do in your faith, he chooses you because he's so confident in, what, confident in what he can accomplish in his faithfulness. Wow. He is confident in what can happen through your faith. And he's confident enough in himself that he doesn't have to be scared of your failure. So God chooses you. God chooses you. And when God chooses you, he will give you a promise that is bigger than you. This is what happens. This is how it goes. Don't be waiting on a promise from God that's not bigger than you because you're not going to get one. You need to understand that when God speaks something to you and you can't fully comprehend it, that means you're on the right track. That means you're on the right track. The promises of God are bigger than you. We need to know some things about the promises of God because Zechariah didn't understand the promises of God and so he rejected them. Mary had faith in the promise of God. They got the same type of promise but two very different responses. And so I want to be Mary. I want to be Mary. I want to respond, Lord, let it be. I want to let you birth things through me. I want to to submit to the things that you want to birth, not just for me, but for the people around me. And that's what we have to understand about the promises of God. This is what will help us have faith and certainty in the promise of God, is that when God gives me a promise, it is so that I can be involved in what he's doing, but I need to know that what he's doing is always bigger than me. 
It's bigger than me. The promise is bigger than me. You need to understand that when God wants to birth something through you, you need to understand it's not ultimately for you. Which is why you can have faith. It's not just about you. See, Zechariah, he shows up, he says, I've heard your prayer. Mary, he shows up, he says, you found favor in my eyes, and so I'm going to give you something. I want to give you something because I love you. I'm going to give a son to you, but I want you to know these sons are not just for you. The promise isn't just for you. He says, I'm going to bless you, but this isn't all about you. He doesn't just say to Zechariah, I'm going to give you a son because you asked for a son. He says, I'm going to give you a son and he's going to make a way for many in Israel to be prepared for the way of the Lord. He doesn't just say to Mary, I'm going to give you a son because I I like you and I love you and I want to give you a son for you to have a son. That is true, but I want to give you a son and he will be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I will give him the throne of David. He will rule over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will reign forever. The promise that Mary got wasn't about Mary. It was about you. It was about me. It was about the nations. And when I understand that God's promises are bigger than me, it gives me faith to trust in those promises. It gives me enough faith to know that when God chooses me, and I know He chose the wrong person, I can have confidence that He's still going to birth the right promise. Number one thing, the number one thing we learn about how God comes is that He seemingly consistently comes to the wrong person. Number two, God always seems to come right where he does come. Where does God come? Who does God come to? He comes to the wrong people. Where does God come? Right where he does. Every time. Every single time. Verse 11, we read this earlier. It says, it's talking about Zechariah. He's in the temple. It says, and there appeared. Right there. Right there. That's where God showed up. Right there. In Judea. In Jerusalem. In that temple. At that altar next to that incense, right there. Verse 28, Gabriel shows up to Mary, and he came to her. Where did he come? Right there. God came right there, right where she was. That's where God showed up. See, God's not stuck back where you've been. And and God's not just out there waiting for you in your future. God is right where you are. And God comes right where you are. See, Zechariah was, he was just serving when he was supposed to, when it was the custom, when it was his little group's turn and the lot just happened to fall on him that day to go into that temple and go into that altar. Mary was probably at her house where she was every day, doing something she did every day in the same place that she always did it. So you can know with certainty, because of the birth of Jesus, that God will always come where you are. He usually isn't going to keep you there, but He will find you there. Where's God in your life? Where are you? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, how often is God just right there? How often are we looking for God? Asking, where are you, God? And the reality is that God's right there. I'm looking around, waiting around, thinking about being somewhere else, doing something else, somewhere else. But God is trying to meet with me right where I am. 
I wonder if in this season that we're in that we all can't wait to be over so we can go to some new places. I wonder if God might be trying to meet with us right there. I wonder if God might be trying to meet with you right where you are, right in that season you're in, in that house you're in, in those relationships that you're in, in those places that you are not. I wonder if God wants to meet you right where you are. I wonder if God isn't waiting for churches to open back up on Sunday to meet with you. I wonder if God isn't waiting to move you into your next season to speak to you. I wonder if God might know exactly where you are. I wonder if God might be right there. Number three, God always seems to come when He does. God always comes to the wrong person. He always comes where He comes. And He always comes when He comes. Verse 8 in Luke chapter 1. Now, while He was serving as a priest before God, when His division was on duty, when Zechariah was serving, when his division was on duty, when it was custom for these things to be happening, when it was custom for things to be happening, and when those things were happening, when everybody else was outside doing what they were supposed to do right then, that's when God broke through. Right then. Right, right when he did. Verse, verse 26, how about for Mary? When, when did Gabriel show up in the sixth month, referring to Elizabeth's, pregnancy. Zechariah, he showed up right then. For Mary, God showed up six months after that. <laughs> Just showed up right then, right, 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 right when God showed up. That's when he showed up, right, right when Mary was just doing something, right when, when she was just somewhere, right, right when she was where she was. She was doing something and Joseph was doing something else. And everybody else was doing something else, probably normal stuff. That's when God showed up right then. Chapter 2, let's just skip to verse, or chapter 2 real quick. When, when was Jesus born? I mean, this is a big deal. This must have happened on a big day sometime, right? Like, like this one must have been marked by everybody. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 6, in, in those days. You know, those days? Yeah. That's when. Those really special days, right? Like the ones that everybody was waiting on. No, no, just, just, just in those days. And then verse 6, so in those days, you know, Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem and then Jesus was born while they were there. Just, you know, in those days when they were in a spot doing a thing. <laughs> What's my point? My point is that God always shows up when He does. And we can always have confidence in that timing. I may not have confidence in my timing. God may not do things on my time, but I can know for a fact, for certain, that God will do what He's going to do right when He's going to do it. I can't tell you when God's going to break through in any given situation, but when He does... And He will, because He always does. And we know He always does, because He always has. When He does break through, that's exactly when He's going to do it. Because God doesn't just show up in situations. God shows up in stories. God shows up in timelines. God shows up in context. I think it's fascinating 
that God could have just written the timeline out as things just happen and this happened like you thought it should and all of this sort of thing. But as we've been talking about the Bible, it's a revelation to us that God is a God of stories. And if he hasn't come in yet, he's still coming. There's just more to the story. The story is bigger than you because the promise is bigger than you. You might be the wrong person because of something you're thinking, but you are the right person because of what God sees in the story. Stop worrying about when and start paying attention to now. Now, now verse, now chapter one says verse eight, is that what it is? Verse eight, now, now while he was serving, that's when God broke through. God wants to talk to you about now, now, not then, not back then, not until then. God wants to talk to you right now about now. He wants to talk to you about now. And if this isn't a word for now, I don't know what is. How long is this going to last? When's it going to stop? You know, these are real good questions that we're asking about our quarantine and state shut. All of these sort of things. Those are, those are good questions. But, and th- those are, but those are people questions. Those are, those are people questions. Questions us people ask. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask them. But don't elevate your people questions above God questions. God wants to talk to you about now. He's not back then. He's not in next. God is with you now. Don't miss now because God is showing up now. God is always showing up right when he does. And God wants to talk to you about right now. I want you to know this morning that God doesn't come to you because you're the right person in the right place at the right time. Stop stressing about being the right person. Stop stressing about wondering if you're in the right place. Stop stressing about if now is the best time or if you've already missed your time or if you're still waiting to grow into your time. God doesn't come because of those things. God comes because he loves you. And the testimony of the birth of Jesus is that God comes because he does. And I can always be certain of that. He calls you his child. That makes you the right person. God sits you at his right hand that puts you in the right place. And God is with you always. And that makes all the time the right time. I want to pray for us as we close our time together. I want to pray that we would be certain. We would be certain of this man, Jesus, and certain that God is close. And as I pray, you know, I don't know what God's stirring in you this morning, but I want to encourage you to just listen right now to what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you in your heart. I want you to respond however it is that God is leading you. And if you are watching this this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, you can do that right here, right now, today. I'm going to pray and lead us in that. You don't have to have all the answers. Jesus is the answer. That's the beauty of salvation. It's not having everything that we arrive at. It's stepping into the first step of an invitation from God to be a part of what he wants to do in you through the rest of your life. So let's pray together. Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you are close right now. And I'm praying right now for anybody watching this who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would pull on their heart, that you would show up like you showed up to Zechariah, to Mary, to me, to the others in this room, Lord, would they know that you are close. And Lord, um, just if if you're praying with me right now and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, you can just pray something simple like this. Jesus, I am certain, I choose to be certain that you are God. And I need forgiveness for my sins. I give you my life and commit to follow you. Would you forgive me? Would you make me new? 
And would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? And Lord, for all of us, I'm asking, Lord, that your word would stir our hearts to move forward, that we would release having to be the right people in the right place at the right time, and we would understand that we are your people right where you have us at exactly the time that you have us there. You are moving. You are speaking. That even in this season, this is a season of encounter. This is a season of knowing you. So we submit to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.